Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We have been for quite a while. And over the last couple of weeks, we have been doing really kind of an isolated, deep dive into the Lord's Prayer. And the reason we're doing this is that even as we all know this prayer uh, very well, I mean, I would be willing to bet virtually everyone here has it memorized, and we probably don't even need to put it in the bulletin. Well, our familiarity uh, can cause us to gloss over uh, just how deep this simple prayer uh, really goes and just how profound it is and what it, it teaches us. Well, last week we focused on the words sin and debt in the phrase, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And we worked through what the Bible means by those, those terms and how American culture has rejected the notion that we are in any way responsible to God for our lives. Now, we'll come back to some of those, those issues again this week, even as, well, we're going to focus on what it means for God to forgive us. Like last week, because Luke presents the Lord's Prayer, not in a vacuum, but within the larger context of Jesus' teaching about God's goodness, really his fatherly goodness, I think it's worth reading all 13 verses of this, this passage again this week. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 11 with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's Go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word that we have in your Son who taught us to pray these wonderful words that we, we know, I would say, all of us here by heart, even as if everyone here is anything like me, we take them for granted so often. So I pray our time together would help us to take it less for granted, that we would meditate on these words, that it would teach us how to pray and what a privilege it is that we have to be able to pray. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we used the Westminster Larger Catechism as a good biblical summary of what sin is. And, and here's how it, it defines it. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. To put that into modern English, sin is anything where I do not desire 
to conform to God's law. So I, I don't want to be defined by it or ruled by his law. And that's the state of our, our heart's desire. That can happen without you doing anything at all. It's just what you are thinking or what your desires are. Or it's any transgression or breaking of his law. And this is both the willful breaking of his law or it's breaking God's law in ignorance that God has given to his reasonable creatures, that is to his his image bearers to humans. So these aren't laws for other creatures that demonstrate some intelligent, like say dolphins or elephants. Uh, these are laws for humans. So for example, just to show you how this works, I cannot break the law of gravity. Uh, that's a natural law that God has put into place for our good and that sets parameters on us. Now I can try and go against it for a time, but once that jet fuel you know, ends, well, gravity's gonna win. But I can commit theft, which is a moral law that is also put into place for our good. And both God's natural laws and his moral laws, as Psalm 19 teaches, are good. They are good, and they are an outworking or a reflection or revealing of his character. That this world is an ordered place according to God's law that easily sustains the lives of billions upon billions of of creatures, not just humans, speaks to God's life-giving and life-sustaining character. But also consider that it is actually a very good thing not to steal or to murder or to commit adultery or to take God lightly. It's good not to worship an idol. It's good to rest and worship God in the ways that he's ordered for us with six days and Sabbath. It's good to be content with what God has given us, whether it be our spouses or our talents or the shape of our ears. What makes the law seem so onerous, so heavy, so unattractive, so, I don't know, burdensome, and the reason we often desire to break it instead of keep it, it's not God or the law itself. It's our sin. And again from last week, there, there are two ways to think about how we, we sin. On the one hand, sin is it's active. It's something we do. And sometimes our sin is purposeful. These are called the sins of commission. But sometimes we commit sin unaware. These are our sins of omission. So to use an example from basketball, sometimes a player will knowingly and purposely go for the ball in such a way that he commits a foul. But other times, with, say, a younger player, the player will commit traveling or double dribble and will look at the referee in disbelief when he's called for it. What did I do wrong? And, of course, it's rare that any player or, or coach doesn't dispute the law or the ruling of the referee and doesn't say the same thing. That referee is an idiot. He doesn't know anything. And in the case of that younger player... It did not matter that the player did not know the rule. He's playing the game, and he broke the rules, and everyone watching who has any familiarity with the game knows he broke it and should be called on it. His breaking of the rules, his sin, so to speak, has now revealed to him a problem that just a moment before he was completely unaware of. So even as sin is something we actively do, whether knowingly or not, sin is also a condition we have. 
much like someone having a disease that they just can't shake. So to tell someone to quit sinning, for example, is akin to telling someone to quit cancer. Right? You, you can't will cancer away. You can't stop cancer ring. Right? Someone or something outside of you must heal what is killing you from the inside out. And of course, this is what people often deny in our times. And it shows up in phrases like, ah, well, I believe people are basically good. Or, I don't know, they watch somebody help out a homeless puppy and they say, you know, my, my faith in humanity has been restored. But even just a cursory understanding of history, just a cursory understanding of the 20th century will show that such a notion, notion is not just false, it's absurd to think that. For Jesus to teach his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins, implies that it is God who is both lawgiver and the judge and that we have primarily and ultimately sinned against him and really only secondarily against our neighbors, though that's very important too. And in turn, it is to God first that we must turn to for forgiveness. Now, it is common, at least in practice, to think of forgiving as simply letting something go, as in, it's okay, man, don't worry about it. And I'd go so far as to argue that when we, we say, I'm sorry, there is the expectation that by verbalizing our contrition, the words alone are sufficient to render the matter settled, as if apologizing pays the moral debt and puts to rights the wrong. It does not. It does not. So put this into the context of one of the examples I used last week. What if someone stole your car and in turn either sold it or they totaled it. Say it was a known felon, hopped up on meth, meth who slammed your car into a telephone pole and then walked away unscathed. Would your response be, it's okay, man. Don't worry about it. Probably not. Probably not. But even if someone is incredibly mature in their faith and responds to the addict with those very words, I'd be willing to bet standing behind his calm and forgiving demeanor is an insurance policy that will cover the debt. And as we will see next week, that's actually a decent metaphor for why God's people can forgive other people. Even so, if there is no car insurance and the man still chooses to forgive the addict, it's not as though that's the end of the matter. There is still a very real debt that is now in play, both morally and financially. That transgression of the law of God, let alone the law of the state of Alabama, must be dealt with and someone will have to pay the cost of that lost property. So forgiveness is such that when we forgive, when we forgive, we do one of two things or perhaps both at the same time. We waive our right to seek vengeance, to seek vengeance for the wrong that was done to us, and in turn, we let the moral debt against us go. And as we will talk about next week, our forgiveness is actually predicated and dependent on God's forgiveness of us.
Even so, that does not mean we let justice go or ignore the justice system. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are clear that when it comes to real property, violence, oppression, injustice, slavery, and the list goes on and on, we are to stand up against such things. It's like the words of Micah 6.8, which we sometimes sing in the Sunday evening service. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, justice and kindness is what the priest and the Levite refused. They refused to show to the man dying on the side of the road, which brought to light the reality that despite their elevated religious positions, they did not actually humbly walk with their God. So for us to forgive means that we give up any notion of being an avenger of justice. And we trust God when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In turn, it means that we will not hold the person's sin against them because God no longer holds our sin against us, even as there are real consequences, a totaled car, for example, that must be dealt with. So if vengeance belongs to God, okay, how does he go about forgiving? Well, I think Genesis 2 and 3 is helpful for understanding how God approaches things like the law and sin, and it sets really the pattern for everything that follows in Scripture in terms of what forgiveness is. In Genesis 2, God commanded Adam, that is, let's think through this now, God ordered Adam according to his word. He gave Adam a law. All relationships are ordered which means all relationships in some sense are related by law. And he gave this command that he could eat from every tree of the garden, which presumably included the tree of life, but from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not to eat. And in the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. So let's just think through that a bit. God starts with a law of abundance, right? Think about that. Adam may eat from every, every tree of the garden, but not from this one. Now, how many trees does that include? Who knows? But my guess is that because Eden means paradise, there was a fair amount of trees he could choose from. He does not tell Adam why he may not eat from this one tree, but presumably, like everything he has dealt with Adam to this point, It is for his good. Now, this really is no different from what God commands Israel a long time later in the book of Deuteronomy when the people are on the verge of taking the promised land. He tells them that the land will produce fabulous abundance for them, but they had to keep God's word. So they just had to stay in relationship with him, be faithful. But if they refused to keep his word and chased after other gods, he would bring famine and exile, which like Adam, is what happened to Israel. Now jump ahead to Genesis 3. When the serpent attacked Eve, he used a very subtle argument. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God had said you may eat of every tree but one. The serpent says, did God really not allow you to eat from any tree? 
So it would be like a parent saying to their kid at the restaurant, son, you may order anything off the menu. I don't care, but you can't order the filet. You can't order the filet. Anything. I don't care. You can't order the filet. And then the server shows up and says, boy, did your dad actually say you can't eat anything on the menu? What kind of dad is that? See, the serpent knows what the actual commandment is. He's calling into question God's goodness and generosity through this law. He's purposely making it look as though God, through holding back this one thing, is holding back everything and is thus not good. I mean, what kind of father says no to his hungry child? And this is the nature of sin. This is the nature of sin. What God calls good, sin calls into question. What God calls evil, it calls good. What God says, wait, it's not for you now. Sin says, how unfair is that? God must be evil. Now, Eve in response says, no, God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit, excuse me, eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So though God did not say they couldn't touch the tree or they would die, still, she is essentially right. Even so, the serpent has drawn her attention to the one thing God has held back from them. He's focused her attention there. That this one tree would bring death, God says as much, obviously signifies its importance. And through a half-truth, the serpent reveals its purpose to them, which presumably was unknown to them previous to the serpent saying this. The fruit of the tree is not magical. It's not poisonous. The action of taking and eating from this tree that is set apart for a special purpose is useful. Is useful for opening humanity's eyes to be able to judge between good and evil. It's the promise of maturity. And what the serpent does not reveal to them is that the path to the maturity God intends for them is dependent on their faithfulness to God's word. If they keep God's word and wait for him to give them access to the tree, their immaturity would be put to death and they would be raised to maturity, walking with God and fulfilling their God-given kingly roles, having dominion over the world, including over the angels. This is why the words take, eat, this is my body, are so key in the Lord's Supper. It's a reversal. God freely gives now through his Son. But if they did not keep God's word, refusing to wait for him, in turn taking and eating on their own terms, they would have a form of judgment I mean, clearly everyone knows the difference between right and wrong in varying degrees, but their unfaithful actions would usher in death as a permanent feature of humanity's life, and it would mar the creation. But they're not told that. That's kept back from them from the devil. And in response to Eve, the serpent said, you will not surely die. So if in his previous statement he had said, did God not allow you anything to eat? Here again, he just reverses God's word and he says, no, you will not die. You will not die. So in the sense that their bodies did not immediately stop living, well, he was correct. 
He was correct. But death is not merely the death of our bodies. That is arguably the secondary part of death. Death is fundamentally a spiritual condition that involves the severing of humanity's relationship to God, which in turn affects every aspect of our existence down to our beating hearts. So as you know, the couple rejects the word of God, listening to the serpent, they take and they eat. The order of what happens next is very important. It's very important. First, they gain some level of knowledge of good and evil, enough to realize instantly that they were now in sin. This one sin put them into the state of sin, which as Genesis 4 through 11 makes clear, is very much like a bucket full of waste from a septic tank, tossed into a pristine, clear pool that spreads to affect every inch of that pool eventually. This also shows that even if humans were born innocent and sin-free, we are not. We are, we are born into the slavery of sin. But even if we were born sin-free, all it would take is one, one transgression of the law for sin and death to destroy a person, let alone to infect the world. That's how serious sin really is. Second, Adam and Eve are incapable of covering their sin or atoning for it, which was seen in their initial attempt to kind of fumblingly you know, clothe themselves. They're just grasping at whatever they can, and it's not working. Third, in their sin, God comes to them. They don't go looking for God. He comes looking for them, and he calls them out. They hide from him and refuse to take responsibility for their sin. They blame shift for why they broke his law. I mean, just consider this. Nowhere in Genesis 3 does anyone say, I sinned against you, O God, and I am sorry. No one says it. And apart from God's action, apart from his movement towards them, no one repents. Even so, God, as we see here, he never dismisses his law. He never just turns a blind eye to sin. He never says, well, it's okay, ever. And to do that would make him unjust. It would make him evil. It's like parents who refuse to discipline their children, giving in to every tantrum, every whim. While it may look as though they have blessed their children with stuff, by refusing to put parameters on them, they have actually been evil to their kids. Those kids will not grow up into maturity and wisdom. No, they will grow into mature bodies with immature hearts that are set on their selfish desires. For God to turn a blind eye to sin would make him evil. But in the midst of describing the consequences of humanity's sin, we see two important things with God. First, God promises that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent would bruise his heel. Then God gives a vivid picture of what it will mean for their sin to be covered when he clothes them with animal skins. That means that those animals had to cut loose of those skins, which means they died. Who put them to death? God himself put them to death. So in other words, in order for humanity to be forgiven, the offspring of the woman will have to die like the animals 
who died to cover their shame. That means that God does not merely overlook their sin. He does not just let it go and pretend it did not happen. God never says, it's cool, man, no worries, ever. The effects of their sin are real, as is evidenced by the death that touches on all of reality. And God could no more ignore the reality of what happened than we could ignore the reality of our stolen car. What Genesis 2 and 3 demonstrates then is that one, God's law is good. It is good. Two, that we are rightly ordered by God's law, and he never does away with right ordering for us. I mean, after all, just consider Jesus. Jesus perfectly kept the law, and the giving of his spirit is in part so that the law would be written on our hearts. As Jeremiah 31, New Covenant language, that through the spirit he would sanctify us and grow us into maturity as God had intended with Adam and Eve. Three, as his reasonable creatures, we are responsible to him in a way that no other creature is. Lions don't steal cars. They don't commit murder. And so our sin must be dealt with and accounted for even as we are incapable of doing it. And then four, so without waiting for an apology, God promised to atone for sin and in turn offered his forgiveness and the restoration to the right ordered relationship with him, which includes the defeat of death itself. And everything in scripture after this follows this pattern. Everything in scripture that follows is an outworking of all this stuff. So for example, in Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, promising to bless the world through him, God alone pledges to keep both sides of that relationship. So think about that. It would be like going to a wedding and the husband took both sets of vows. He will be faithful to his own vows to his bride and he would keep his bride's vows too. He will be faithful for her. See, God knows us. He knows that we are dust and mired in sin and incapable of fully keeping his law and in turn, keeping faith with him that we can't. So he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Likewise, you get to Genesis 22 in that vivid scene with Abraham and Isaac. God showed his people through the near sacrifice of Isaac that they could not offer their sons for atonement. Instead, God himself would provide the offspring of Eve who would atone for the sin of the world. And this is the chief message of Passover. And the plague of the firstborn sons in the book of Exodus, even as it is a prominent feature in the Levitical sacrificial system and the annual pilgrimage feast. It's all over the place. Firstborn, unblemished male animals symbolically substitute for the people. And it's symbolic because as it was shown in Genesis 3, an animal cannot atone. It cannot substitute for or pay the debts of a human. Only a human could do that. And as we just walk through with our catechism questions, no sinful human can do that at all. Now, the Levitical system was depended upon, and it looked forward to the promised human offspring of the woman to come. Now, as an aside, it is very telling. It is very telling that in ancient pagan religions, and this is also true of so-called modern advanced civilizations too, that the sacrificial death of children was sometimes demanded by the gods or more accurately, by demons. So it is towards the end of the book of Kings that you find wicked kings rejecting the temple 
and the sacrificial system provided by God for their atonement, and instead they offer their children to gods like Baal and Asherah, and they did not have to do this. They did not have to do this. And my point is that God never does away with the requirements of the law. He never drops the charges, even as he promised right from the beginning to provide an offspring who would pay the debt. And what is so often missed in Genesis 3, let alone the whole of Scripture, is that God sought out his people in their sin first. First. And despite the offense and hurt that they had caused him, he refused to turn his back on them. It's like what God says in Isaiah 44, 22. This is all over Scripture, but this is a beautiful version of it. This is God speaking. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. I made you. You were my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So God has not left his people to die. He has not forgotten them. He has provided a way of atonement, a way in which our sins are, do you get the picture, blotted out? Blotted out like a cloud, like a mist, so as though they have disappeared. A way of forgiveness that deals with death itself so that we can return to him and repent and find life in him. And what so many Christians mistakenly, they get this exactly backwards. Believing we must repent first, then he will forgive, it doesn't work that way. As if we have to get our lives right and then he will atone? No. No, we can only repent because he has already provided the way of atonement. So the way of forgiveness first promised to Eve and later again with Abraham comes to its concrete fulfillment in Jesus, God's son, the offspring of the woman who desired to keep God's law. He delights in it, never breaking it in thought, word, and deed, and in turn, he was the only one who was capable of offering his life as a substitute for the life of his people. So God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He kept both sets of vows. This is what theologians call justification. Again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism I think is incredibly helpful in this. It says, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Again, let me translate. Let me put that into modern English. Justification is an act of God's free grace. An act, a one-time event accomplished on the cross of Christ that God freely gives. He freely gives it to whoever wants it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You're not worthy of it. Even as God freely gives it as he promised Eve he would do. And through that one-time event, God pardons all our sins. I mean all of them. Past, present, future. That, is, that boggles my mind. I don't understand how it works, but that's the promise. That's the promise. And accepts us as righteous in his sight. And here's the key part of why he does this. He accepts us as righteous in, in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So like how the prodigal son, remember that, that, that parable? How the prodigal son in his, son in his sin received a robe 
from his Father. So Christ clothes us in his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's his. He clothes us in himself. And we receive all of this like Abraham by faith alone. Now that last part is important and is perhaps what most Christians around here really struggle with. If you will remember several weeks back with the, the Pharisee who tested Jesus, remember, asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer is nothing. You can't do anything. You just receive it. There's nothing a person can do. It's all a gift. You either receive it from God or you die trying to find a way to justify yourself. That's it. That's the only two ways there are. Now, maybe you are one of the, those people who can't receive a compliment without denying the compliment, right? Or you can't receive help, or you can't receive a gift without feeling as though, I don't want this charity, or I, I need to reciprocate. I need to be able to give a gift in return. Faith is not, I will be worthy of this gift. No, faith is, I am completely unworthy of this, but I absolutely need it to live. Thank you, God, for giving it to me. You see, God gives this out of his love, out of his love. And his intention is not that you will grovel or that you will feel as though you owe him or you will give him a life that's worthy of everything you know. The intention is that you will love him in return. So what the phrase forgive us our sins assumes is that those who belong to Jesus have been justified by him. We are declared righteous and we are pardoned. But the fact that Jesus teaches us to repeatedly ask God for forgiveness, even as we forgive those who sin against us, assumes what theologians call adoption and sanctification. So we're not done with this phrase yet. More in the week to come. Let me pray for it. Heavenly Father, though it is often hard to see and to make sense of, you have given us every good thing. We did not earn it. We were not worthy of it. You gave it to us. You came to us in the midst of our sin because you refused to forget. You refused to just let us die. You have provided a way of atonement a way of forgiveness. Lord, may we be the kind of people who are a God-built people, as Frank prayed earlier. May we be the kind of people who daily turn to you in forgiveness, looking to you. And may we be the kind of people who daily forgive those who sin against us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.